Well, welcome to the year 2020, amen? Our first Sunday morning here in the new year. Excited for what the Lord is going to be doing. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. Uh, We'll be taking uh, most of the senior staff away for a few days. We're leaving tomorrow about noon. Um, We're going to spend three days just seeking vision for the Lord. So I would ask that you pray for us as we gather together and seek the face of the Lord for the new things that he has for the new year. Uh, We do this every year, and it's one of the ways that the Lord speaks. uh, Those things that maybe we need to change, those things that maybe we need to add, those things that maybe we need to not do anymore. Uh, Every once in a while, the Lord will give us one of those things. It's like, well, that was good then, but it's not good today. So uh, do pray for us as we gather together over the next uh, three days We'll be back on Wednesday late afternoon. If you turn in your Bibles again to Luke chapter 2 and remind yourself that here at Calvary Chapel we journey through the entirety of the Bible. We skipped no verses and as we got to Christmas we actually covered the first seven verses we'll look at uh, today but we're going to cover the remainder of this passage and add some things in for you uh, as we begin to look at this what we call the Christmas story. So this week we're going to say goodbye to Bethlehem. Uh, We'll pick up Jerusalem next time uh, as the Lord would speak into our lives through this, what we call the Christmas story. But I want to give you the Savior's Saga Part 4 and really the three responses that the world gives to the coming of the Messiah. And the reason this is important is this. It doesn't matter in your life what I believe about the Savior. It matters what you believe about the Savior. That's why we call our relationship with him a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You are not saved because you come to church. You're not saved because your parents were Christians. You're not saved because we live in a country where Christianity is more normal than not. You're not saved because someone prayed for you the sinner's prayer. You are only saved because you have personally believed on the only begotten Son of God. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to make himself known to the world, the totality of it. And so the role of the church is not as an arm of politics. The role of the church is not as an arm of government. The role of the church is not a social institution. The role of the church is to make Christ known. And then to see people grow in the knowledge of the grace of God. And so as we look at this passage, we see a little microcosm of how the world responds to the message of the Savior. And so as we begin, we'll pick up in verse 1. We're going to take 20 verses today, Uh, so get ready. We'll cover a large passage of Scripture, but three responses uh, from the world regarding Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you. For the opportunity to gather on this first Sunday of 2020, Lord, to seek your face and to hear your voice from heaven 
And so, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us, that you would move mightily by your Spirit. Fill us, Lord. I pray for those today that maybe you've come and they have yet to make that personal profession of faith. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, convince of the gospel, the truth of it, the glorious offer of peace that you've made with mankind through your own death on the cross. And so, Jesus, we give this time to you. Use your word to speak to your people, we pray, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Verse 1, in a familiar passage, we covered it in our Christmas narrative. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And it's important for you to realize that in that day and time, uh, the world was basically what we would call the Middle East and Southern Europe. We're talking about the world that was civilized at that point in time. So 2,000 years ago, that would have been uh, a large percentage of what we call the Middle East, certainly would have included Greek, and it very definitely would have included the Roman Empire. That was the ruling government of the day. And so Caesar Augustus makes this decree that the world should be registered. Why? For the purpose of paying taxes. For supporting a heathen, pagan government. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) And again, I wouldn't live any place else other than the USA. But not everything we do represents the Lord Jesus. Amen? We have to be really careful to not conscript the Savior and make him into a political pawn. Jesus is God. He's not just simply a politician. The politicians of the day gave the order for taxes. The savior of the day came to seek and save that which is lost. We must remember the difference between those two things because there is a difference between the government and the church. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph went up to Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, in the days that were completed for her to be delivered, that she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, lied him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Jesus was born in a time of political intrigue. And sometimes we're we're tempted to look at this ancient story of our Savior's birth and leave it in antiquity. But it's really a very modern story because it was a time of political upheaval. It It was a time that the world was run and governed by an entity that was anything but godly. It was a time that we could look at and say there are many similarities to the world that we live in today. And while not exactly the same, uh, the Romans were to some degree responsible for the measure of peace that existed in the Roman Empire. But they were certainly not godly. And so it was a similar time in that way. And so as we look at this story, we should bring it into our day and time. Caesar Augustus had been calling for this new collection of tax, 
he had the supreme good fortune to be related to the previous empire, uh, Cassius Octavius. And because he was the great-grandson of the former emperor, he had tons of political clout. And so he takes up the name uh, Caesar, and he takes up the name Augustus for good measure. And after the murder of Julius Caesar, uh, his greatest rival, Mark Antony, uh, clears the way for the supreme power. And before you know it, you have a world that is largely governed by a single country. You see, things haven't changed all that much in the last 2,000 years. There's always someone in power. There is always some government that generally has control. And sometimes that's been a coalition of governments. Sometimes that has been a singular world ruler. But make no mistake, Caesar Augustus was not in control of the world at Jesus' time. There was a God in heaven who sat on the throne that was still in charge. And I remind you of that same truth today. It looked from earth's perspective like no matter what Caesar Augustus said, Caesar Augustus got. And to some degree, that had a measure of truth. But it did not have eternal truth behind it. Because the eternal truth is this. God appoints kings and governors. God ordains governments for a period of time. They are there for our good, not for our evil. They are supposed to do the will of the people. But God is the one who ultimately is in charge of every government. Many times governments don't listen. But make no mistake, God has not yielded his sovereign power to any man, including a man like Caesar. Sometimes I think the church becomes too worried about what Caesar is doing and not worried enough about what God is doing. And so I ask you today, shift your gaze to heaven. Because if you get too caught up in the things of the earth, you will not see things from heaven's perspective. You'll see them from earth's perspective, and that is both deceptive and dangerous. Because God is still in control. And we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto us. Amen? But if we get caught up in the world's ways, we get what the world can do. We need to be caught up in God's ways so that we receive what God wants. Be careful, family, because I listen to people constantly trying to, trying to defend everything that's going on in our world from some political bent and it doesn't need to have a right or a left attached to it or a liberal conservative attached to it there is a God in heaven whom ultimately every one of us will answer to make sure you're good with him if you're good with him you're good the world then was trying to deal with a rogue government and while that rogue government had many good things about it, it was far from good. And so in our story, Mary and Joseph begin this journey towards Bethlehem. The tax that Caesar 
imposes on the entire world at the time was, was so that everyone could be taxed to support the government. Uh, Mary and Joseph, now married, are about to have a baby. They're going to make this arduous journey that depending on which set of roads that you would have taken at the time would have been anywhere between 75 and 90 miles in totality. Uh, They would have likely come to Jerusalem first and then traveled about eight miles south to Bethlehem. But this was not a journey like we make today. We don't hop on a plane. We don't hop on public transit. We certainly don't get in our Prius and get some good gas mileage. They were on a donkey and they were walking. Now for those of you who are here and you are women and you have ever born children, imagine that you are due. Your due date is today. And your husband says to you, honey, we're going to go for a hike. And you say, what? Yes, we're getting, well, you can ride. You can ride on the donkey. And you're going, I ain't riding no donkey. You can ride the donkey. You can go by yourself, in fact. This, this is the Lord in his sovereign plan working out things that he foreordained according to the book of Micah in chapter 5 that we saw in our story for Christmas. God said, you're going to go, and they went. There's no reason for someone to choose that. You're going to have to have a reason that is beyond all human understanding. That reason is God using a pagan Caesar to put forth a tax that causes the word of God to be fulfilled in its totality. That shows you the sovereign workings of God. This is where we look and we marvel because there is no way in the world left to their own devices that for any reason Mary is going to travel to Bethlehem at that stage of her pregnancy unless her very life essentially depended on it. And that was the case. In that day and time, you did not defy Rome. You went and did what Rome told you to do. And if you didn't do it, you're probably going to pay with your life. And so God, in this difficult situation, is actually moving to accomplish his purposes. In your life, God is working in your difficult situations to accomplish his purposes in your life. You need to see those things that way. They may not make sense to you in the moment. But God has lost none of his power. He's lost none of his majesty. And he's lost none of his control of our world. We're tempted to believe sometimes that like, you know, the the governments of the earth have somehow superseded God's authority. That somehow, if we don't act right now in a certain way, that God will have fallen effectively off the throne. That is not true, family of God. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be engaged in things in our our life and living that speak forth the truths that we believe into our society. That is a must as well. But we must also not worry to the point that we now have said, well, I don't know how God's going to fix this. Because there is no way to get Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem either. And if God can accomplish something that simple, don't you think that he cares more about what happens to the nations of the earth? He is able, is he not? And church, we need to think on these things. Because the church is getting caught up in things that are neither productive, nor are they godly. 
We're, we're debating and fighting and we're becoming exactly like the world that we live in instead of representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We need to be careful. You may well have an opinion about things going on in the earth, as do I. But my opinion should be guided and governed by what I know about my Lord. That, to me, is not an opinion. That is the truth of my Savior. Amen? When they take this journey, they stop at an inn that was likely the same one that's spoken of there in 2 Samuel 19, and also Jeremiah may himself have stopped there at Chinham's Inn, this place that was first built by the servant of David, the king. We're told in Jeremiah that it actually was in Bethlehem. And so here comes this, this inn back. And you have to remember, you know, we live in a day and time. I don't know how many of you saw that the Chase Bank over on Hawthorne burned down. It's like a dirt lot right now. Amen? It's gone. It's like there's no evidence there was ever a bank on the corner over there by, by the mall. And if you go, it's like dirt and a fence. They didn't do that then. Everything. We think we invented repurposing. No, they repurposed everything, every stone. And so it was very common for buildings to last for hundreds, if not a thousand or more years. They would simply reuse the stones that were there in the first place, build on top of it, and create a new structure. And so cities back then lasted a very, very, very long time. And those are the things that we look at in our world as we do archaeological excavations. We, we can tell how old things are by the number of layers of civilization that are there. If you travel with us, uh, we go to, to Megiddo, this city that's on the edge of the Jezreel Plain that's been inhabited for 3,800 years. There's 3,800 years of civil, levels of civilization that exist at that site. And you can see... And so it was then that David's city had been inhabited from the time of David. It's now a thousand years later. And here's this little tiny roadside stop on a dirt road. We have communities that completely have been gentrified. They've changed from one dynamic to another dynamic, whether it's social or economic maybe even racial. We, we have those things happen, but they generally get completely rebuilt. Not so, because the communities then were tiny. A few hundred people at the most lived in most of these communities. And so because there was water there, because there was a crossroads there, people would naturally travel those directions. There was always a reason for a community to be in a specific place. And in this case, it was not only historic, the home of King David, it was also at one of the very few places in that region in the southern Judean hills where water was found consistently. And that was critical when you have an area that receives less than five inches of rainfall every year, much like we are here. Sometimes we forget that were it not for the reservoirs in Northern California, for the water that comes from the Sierras, both the East and the Western Sierras, we could not live here. Our water doesn't come from here. It comes from the rest of the state. So back then, water was very specifically necessary for life to, to continue in any, any given region. You could transport it for a while, but you needed to have a permanent source, and that was Bethlehem. And so they make that. Next, we see the reaction of the princes of the world. Verse 8. 
Uh, and now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, who is Yahweh Adonai. He's the Messiah. He's the King. And this will be the sign to you. Here's the sign. This is the weirdest sign ever given in all of humanity. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling claws lying in a manger. Not you're going to see a neon sign over Bethlehem. The star was not the sign. That would be a sign to the Magi. But in this case, the sign was a baby in a manger, in a feed trough. Something very simple that would be built by a carpenter. We don't know where the feed trough came from. We just know that there was one. We know what Joseph was. He was a carpenter. Amen? He he may have had to build his own baby's manger. We don't know. But that was the sign. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And so again, our story that we had for Christmas, you, you can almost imagine and put this into the context of the time as the Jewish people thought back about David the king. You remember the story and it's found there in First Samuel chapter 16. The sons of Jesse are passing before Samuel the prophet. And Samuel says to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these sons. There's this incredible thing that happens. It's like, Okay, you brought me all the good ones. It's none of them. And, and then Samuel says, do you have any other young men? Are these all of your sons? Well, technically no. You, you can almost see the way that our world justifies things. Well, I wasn't going to show you him because it says he was ruddy and of good complexion, uh, but he wasn't the kind that anybody would be looking for. And Samuel says, the Lord told him, anoint him king. So in this same city, in the city of David, all of a sudden, the Savior appears. Part of the prophetic picture that we have to acknowledge is that the Savior was always going to come from David's line. And so the emphasis here is on, this is David's hometown. This is where David was crowned king. And now we're crowning the King of Kings. We're crowning the Lord of Lords. And the coronation ceremony is going to be this. You'll find him lying in a manger wrapped in medical bandages. That's the King of Kings. That's Isaiah's one about whom there is supposed to be nothing that we would desire him. And yet who shows up to this coronation? The hosts of heaven. Amen? That's what's going on. And so as you see in this story, Luke describes the glory of the Lord which shines, they're bathed literally in the light of heaven. 
Now, if you're an angel, you're used to that. Amen? So the angels are kind of almost, in, in this sense, an afterthought. It's really the shepherds that are the focus. The princes of this world were, were not Caesar Augustus. The princes of this world were not Herod, Herod the Great. Both were alive and well at the time. The princes of the world was not Quirinius the governor. The princes of the world was not Pontius Pilate. The, the princes of the world were not the ruling Roman government and their Praetorian guard who protected the emperor. It wasn't the Roman 10th legion that was stationed in that region. The princes of the world were those who came to seek the face of the Savior. That's who we are when we seek the face of the Savior. He has called us princes and kings unto our God. That one day we will inherit the king's kingdom. We're actually in his family. You see, the royalty came from heaven to say, this is the one that you've been looking for. And, and the shepherds begin to, to worship and they think about these things and they're, they're thinking, salvation is going to come from Messiah. He's going to be the Savior. You're, you're going to give us a sign. And, and honestly, as you look at this situation, this is actually what our world still needs today. Amen? We don't need more government. We don't. We have more laws as a nation than have ever been written for any other society in the course of human history. And yet we still have people murdered in their front yard. We have more rules about more things than any people group have ever had in human history. We have more representation of our individual people groups than ever in the course of human history. But you know what it hasn't done? It hasn't changed the heart of man. The heart of man is still desperately wicked and deceitful, and who can know it? People still need to know the Prince of Peace to have peace. Governments have not ever been able to guarantee peace. They can bring circumstantial peace for a time, and we praise God for that. But the real peace is not peace because there's an absence of conflict. The real peace is the peace that we must have with God. Our biggest problem is not the lack of peace that comes from the lack of war, but the lack of peace that comes from lack of relationship with the God that created us. That is why we keep writing godless laws in a country that professes to be godly. That's why we keep doing ungodly things, even though we have been blessed by the God that those laws don't serve. This is the issue. Mankind still has the same problem that the shepherds had. They needed a savior. They needed to know the one true and living God. And so the sign is a stable. The sign is this babe wrapped in swaddling cloths. When you think back on the world's history 
and just a tertiary glance at it, God, in, in essence, is saying, look, I'm announcing amnesty for anyone who wants it. Amen? It's what he's doing. He's saying, look, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came into the world that the world through him might be saved. Amen? We know these things as believers. That's why Jesus came. The problem was very obvious. But we keep trying to put the problem off on other things. We keep trying to say, well, it's this deficiency or that deficiency. When God is saying, you need to know the Prince of Peace if you want to have real peace. If you want to have real peace, you need to know the Prince of Peace. And that's who was in that manger. The Prince of Peace. The King of Kings. He was also El Shaddai. The hero, the mighty God. He was also Lord of Lords. In other words, above him are no gods. Caesar claimed himself to be God. But Caesar was not God, and in fact, in eight years, Caesar would be dead. But our king still reigns. Amen? Amen? Our king still reigns. For all of their trumpeted Roman peace, the Pax Romana, Rome had to constantly fight to impose that peace. They literally killed people to make them stop having war. See, that sounds like a little bit of an oxymoron to you. Be at peace or we're going to kill you. That was Rome. That's how they enforced the Pax Romana. If you come against us, we're going to kill you. It lasted as long as the, the Roman power was there to make sure that no one else waged a different kind of war. How about Napoleon's dictum? If you want peace, Napoleon said, prepare for war. That's how he went about it. He said, this is how we'll give you peace. We'll kill off all of our enemies and then there'll be peace, but it'll be the kind of peace that I want. Neville Chamberlain, as he goes to the Munich Accord, they're going to sign this agreement. It's the Anglo-German Declaration. It's in 1938. It's just prior to the onset of World War II. Hitler is already invading the Sudetenland. And Neville Chamberlain holds up the accord and he says, Peace in our time! In a year, the world was at war. In a year. Break it down to this nation, Judah. Israel. Israel is out of its own land. It's given an opportunity on May 14th of 1948 to return to the land. First time in nearly 2,000 years they're able to inhabit the, the area around the city of Jerusalem. That declaration is made the next morning on May 15th, 1948. Every single Arab nation around them declares and launches an all-out war against Israel. The answer is never going to be found in politics. 
It's only going to be found in the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That's the only place that true peace exists. And finally, it ends with this. What were the people of the world thinking? And so it was, verse 15, that when the angels had gone away from them unto heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem. Remember, they're in the fields. They're not in the town of Bethlehem. And see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They immediately understood that they had been visited by the voice of the Lord. And they were responding to it. They understood fully that this was a decision they would have to make on their own. And they came with haste. They didn't wait around. Well, let's see if somebody else sees the same thing. They responded to the good news themselves. And found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. Now this is crazy to me. If you were going to get the word out, don't you think the word would have gone to the Roman government? Didn't they control the whole world? And instead it went to stinky, smelly shepherds. People who were so despised that their testimony did not count in a court of law. That if they were given in testimony, that their testimony was discounted. And yet the angels came to the shepherds and said, we can trust you with this because you don't have an ulterior motive. There's nothing else that you're going to say except what's been said to you. And so it was that group of humble shepherds that had become the world's first evangelists. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known these things concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which are told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept these things in her heart and pondered them. And then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. They left their flocks. They said, nothing matters more than the truth that we've just been told. We're going to go do something with it. You might say this was the first Christmas rush. You know, if any of you got caught up in some of the traffic that we had around the South Bay during Christmas, you're like, man, I'm just, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to wait until the middle of January, then I'll go out again. (laughs) But here are the shepherds in Bethlehem. They leave their flocks. Now, to put this into perspective for you, this would be like you handing somebody your ATM card, giving them the PIN code and saying, have a nice day, we're leaving. Because that was their livelihood. That was everything they owned. Their flock, if it was their flock, was everything. And they said, we're going to leave everything and we're going to go because we've been told about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is a picture of the response that God wants for every last human being when they find out about the coming of the Savior into their life. They left everything. They said, whatever it is, we'll give it up. It's worth it. We're going to go see the king. And the shepherds found him. They knew it was true. And you have to put this into perspective so that you can understand it. When they got there, they found a crude, pungent, 
not so nice smelling, not so great looking. This is a very sanitized manger we have here. Amen? This is, this is like a California manger. This is like nobody have any problems getting in there. But this manger had maybe centuries of animal stuff. Centuries. That's where Jesus was born. Jesus was born in your filth so that he could set you free. Jesus was born without any royalty, without any pomp, without any circumstance. Born humble so that everyone in this room can relate to him. He didn't come in that glory. That glory followed him. Unlike our Christmas cards, where every single Christmas card you get shows Mary, Joseph, the donkey, and baby Jesus, and guess what's shining on them? The Shekinah glory of the Lord. That wasn't how it was. He came in humility. That glory came after he was born. Because that was the glory. That's what we were waiting for. That's what the world needed. And so family, as we leave the Christmas story, the whole world began to move that night. The whole world. The shepherds took the place of the angels. The people began to wonder about the story. The angels never experienced the saving grace of God because they were from heaven. But those who experienced the Christ child did experience the saving grace. They were asking, they were seeking, they were knocking. They were doing what Matthew's gospel reminds us there in chapter 7. They were looking. And your Bible says, if you will seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. And people have been seeking Jesus every day since. The birth of Jesus always brings a reaction. The only question is what kind. For some people, it's scorn. Some people, it's mockery. For some people, it it is truly a heart-rending fable. It's just like, it's a great story, and so their heart is rent. It's like, oh, that's just so sweet. But his birth drew Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, physically. His birth also drew the angels from heaven, and it drew the shepherds from the field. And those shepherds that saw Jesus the first time believed. That's why they went out telling everybody what they saw. Now, Jesus wouldn't die on the cross for another 32 years. But they believed, just like Abraham believed, like Isaac believed, like Noah believed, as he'd built that ark for 120 years. Every nail, every lash, every bucket of pitch. I believe there is a God who will save. And so as we began today, it does not matter what I believe. It matters what you believe. 
The story's the same. It hasn't changed. The question is, what do you believe? Have you believed on him? I'm going to ask you to stand right now, if you would, please. The worship team's going to come back out. And it's a simple question for you. There may be some today that your belief has been limited to intellectual knowledge. There may be some today that it's more like hope. I I hope there's a God in heaven. There may be some today that are just struggling with your faith. I, I can't answer those questions for you. But I know a great way for us to start the new year. What do you believe about Jesus? If you bow your heads with me right now, and I just simply want to give you opportunity. If you're here today and you've not believed on the only begotten Son of God, and you want to start this year with Jesus as your Savior, not just a piece of history, not just a beautiful Christmas story, not just something we celebrate once a year, but if you want to know Him personally, I want you to slip your hand up right where you're at. I want to pray with you to receive Christ right now. Anywhere in the sanctuary, just put your hand up so I can see it. And we'll pray together. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? I see this hand in the back. Amen. Praise God. Anyone else? Start the year off right. The king came to bring you peace. And if you don't have peace right now, he wants to give you peace. I see that hand in the back to my right. This other hand in the back to my left. Anyone else? You want to know Christ personally? I see this other hand to my left. Don't delay. I don't know what the world holds for any of us, but I do know who holds the world. I see that hand in the back. Praise the Lord. This other hand over here to my left. For those of you who raised your hands, I want to just lead you in a simple prayer. And it's got to come from you. I can help you with some words, but you need to believe in your heart as you pray these things. Would you just pray with me these words? Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior of the world. And I believe that you came to forgive my sins, to give me peace. I believe that you died on Calvary's cross. And I believe in doing so, you paid the price for my sin. I'm giving you my life right now. And I ask that you would be my Savior and my Lord. Would you govern over my life? Lord, help me to live for you all of my days. I thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sin. I thank you for the new life that you're giving me in Christ right now. And I thank you for the peace that goes way beyond my own human understanding. Guards my heart and my mind. Lord, write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Help me to live for you forever. Lord, bring me home one day when my journey's over. And in the meantime, use me for your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the family of God.